0: You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. This episode of DNA ID is sponsored by GEDmatch, the free genealogy website where you can learn about your ancestry and find family members you're related to through DNA, not to mention help catch the bad guys we talk about in every episode. On October 6, 1971, the body of a woman was found in a remote wooded area in Bedford, New Hampshire. The body lay on an unused logging road at the end of Kilton Road near US 3. For those of you looking at a map, Kilton Road has since been extended, and where the body lay is where the access ramp to Route 101 West is now situated. Former Bedford Police Chief David Bailey was a rookie back then. He observed the body where it was found curled up under a pile of what he described as patchy brush. He told the Bedford Patch, quote, I will never forget that smell. The previous month, September, was very warm. Authorities noted the extreme level of decomposition of the Jane Doe. The Bedford Patch reported, quote, According to information provided by the New Hampshire Department of Justice's Cold Case Unit, forensic tests indicated the victim had died one to three months earlier. Not only could they not determine how long the victim had been deceased, they could not determine a cause of death. Her body was just too decomposed, and there were no obvious markings on her remains. But because someone had taken pains to hide the corpse, obscuring it with brush in the woods, her death was ruled a homicide. But there was something else investigators could not determine, her name. There was no ID on the body. She became known as Bedford Jane Doe. Bedford Jane Doe was estimated to be between 23 and 37 years old. She was a Caucasian female, about 5 foot 3 inches tall, with brown hair. She was wearing some distinct clothing for what police shared the description in hopes that someone might recognize it. She was dressed for the warm weather in cut-off blue jean shorts, waist size 32, a maroon pullover blouse with lace at the neck, size 7 brown leather sandals a size 34C underwire bra, and size 6 underwear. I could not find any more about this, but the branches Bedford Jane Doe was found under were not branches that came from the immediate area. Someone had brought them along deliberately to pile on top of her. Bedford Jane Doe remained unidentified for decades. Attempts were made to identify her, but they went nowhere. For example, the New Hampshire State Police and Office of the Chief Medical Examiner, consulted with clay facial reconstruction experts twice over the years. The results were 3D-sculpted facial reconstruction based on Bedford Jane Doe's bone structure that attempted to capture her likeness when she was alive. Both these efforts, in 1993 and 2006, resulted in some tips, but not one of them led to Jane Doe's real identity. Bedford Jane Doe and the circumstances of her case were also entered into VICAP, so that her case was included on the FBI's unidentified person list. With the advent of DNA testing, investigators sought a DNA sample from Jane Doe's remains. But back in the early days of DNA, the samples needed were much larger and more robust than those that suffice today. A workable sample was difficult to obtain. As late as 2012, they still did not have a great sample of Bedford Jane Doe's DNA to work with. Interestingly, even before the advent of forensic genealogy, a genealogist did take on the case. Melinda Byrne was a New Hampshire resident and a professor of genealogy at BU who worked on the Bedford Jane Doe case in 2008. At the time, she defined her specialty as, quote, the study of kinship and identity as it pertains to the law, end quote. She presented the Bedford Jane Doe case to her BU genealogy class that fall. This was all before forensic genealogy was being used to identify does. I didn't really understand the state of identification forensics earlier in the 2000s, so I asked the expert, Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick, to explain it to me. When I read that, I was I, I really didn't understand, and I I really still don't exactly what could have been done with that DNA had you know if they were able to extract a good sample, say in two thousand twelve, what what could be done? I mean, Gedmatch was up and running, but what what was the, what was forensic genealogy wasn't really operative yet, correct?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, yes and no. Um, in two thousand twelve, you know, if you dial back on when genealogy got started in 2000 and you you know you know when it got started it was mainly Y DNA that was used so you know it, it, that was the big deal and so by 2011-12 nobody had even thought about using genealogy for cold case some people were thinking maybe But in 2011 was the first case that I worked using genealogy, and it was using Y DNA. So it had to be male. And so usually that would mean, you know, John Doe's were not really, you know, coming. I mean, there was nothing, it was empty. So I came up with an idea of using the Y DNA to try and find the last name for a killer because the forensic people and the genealogy, the genealogy people borrowed the markers from forensics for Y-DNA. So I realized one day that if some agency gave me, you know, a Y profile for a cold case, that I could run that against the genetic genealogy databases. They had the same markers. So, it, you know, that required a minor adjustment. You know, basically it was all the same. So I went to the Seattle Police Department with that idea, and you know they didn't, they weren't really hot on it. But eventually, the King County Sheriff Department grabbed it, and I worked with them. That was the Sarah Yarnborough homicide, the very first case where genealogy was applied.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, at that time, really, why DNA was the hot item? Uh, 23andMe had been formed in 2006 to use SNP testing. And it was already still early in the SNP story, you know, 2010. The database in 23andMe was probably pretty small. I'm not sure Ancestry had gotten in yet. I have all those dates somewhere. But GEDMatch was not formed to 2010. So GEDMatch in 2012 was almost nothing because, you know, GEDMatch went through a couple of changes. At first, it was meant, I think, for GEDCOMS as a repository for genealogical information. It just so happens the DNA part took off. So I think really it was founded in 2010, sometime in 2010. And I think by 2011, you know, the DNA was warming up. But certainly by 2012, the database was almost zero. Going back in 2012, GEDmatch was a baby. It had almost nothing in it. And the whole SNP testing hadn't really exploded yet. That came later. 2015 was the first solve was the Phoenix Canal murders. I solved it with the po- Phoenix Police Department, but again, that was Y DNA. Okay. Okay. It was only till about 2017 that the snip pot started to boil, and there were several groups. Myself and Margaret Press with DNA Doe, you know, got the idea independent of the SAC DA people using it for Golden State Killer, independent of probably Paragon.
0: So prior to the time that um, the SNP testing took off and, and sort of Jedmatch build up its database, right? Because it started in 2010. It probably took years for the database to, yeah. to grow. So before that time, identifying those was the the DNA was really just for comparison purposes once a theory was formulated, correct? Like you yeah. had to use clues from like like the boy in the box, the physical evidence, you know? like Right, okay. right,
1: correct. and. In, the, in 2012, now the, the DNA would have been not genealogy, it would have been CODIS.
0: Because the victim was a doe and Professor Byrne had no kinship information, she worked with the clues they had, the woman's clothing, approximate age, and appearance to try to figure out who she was. Byrne is quoted in a 2012 article by Teresa Santoski in the Bedford Journal as saying, "Quote: There are a lot of things that point to Canada as an origin. She's wearing a wonder bra, which was not sold in the United States in 1971. She also has gossard panties on, end quote. The height of the heels of Bedford Jane Doe's sandals was also marked in centimeters. Professor Byrne checked the missing persons databases again and again, hoping to come across a description of a missing woman matching Bedford Jane Doe's description. These websites included the National Crime Information Center, or NCIC, a national information-sharing collaboration between the FBI and federal, state, local, and tribal criminal justice users. It was established in 1967 and includes a database of unidentified persons. The Doe Network started compiling a list of missing and unidentified persons on its website in 1999. And NamUs, the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System, was established in 2007. Its website describes NamUs as a national information clearinghouse and resource center for missing, unidentified, and unclaimed person cases across the U.S. And, of course, investigators ran the DNA through CODIS, which has a database of unidentified persons. Professor Byrne never found any matches in any of these databases that she believed could be Bedford Jane Doe. She came to believe it was possible that Bedford Jane Doe was never reported missing. Today, we want to tell you about how you can get involved in solving some of these cases that you've been hearing about on our show. Many of you are probably familiar with GEDmatch. I mention it in pretty much every episode. It's a free genealogy website where you can learn about your ancestry and find family members you're related to through DNA, even if you've tested using different companies. It's also one of the sites used by law enforcement to solve the Golden State Killer case in 2018, and since then has been involved in 500 or more other cases. It is also not used for just violent crimes like murders and sexual assault, but also for identifying John and Jane Doe's and exonerating innocent people who were put away for the wrong reasons. If you've already done a DNA test with a direct-to-consumer testing company like 23andMe, Ancestry, MyHeritage, or DNA, it's easy to upload to GEDmatch and help law enforcement with genetic tips and leads. I'm going to walk you through it. First, go to the company website where you have had your DNA testing done and download your profile as a DNA data file. Next, go to Genmatch and upload the file to Genmatch for processing. Make sure to choose to opt in for law enforcement searches that cover violent crime and missing persons cases. If you want to focus on being helpful to finding identities for unidentified bodies, you can just opt out, which will exclude your profile from violent crime case searches. Within 24 hours of this upload, you'll have access to a suite of DNA tools, allowing you to delve deeper into your results. Compare your DNA to everyone on the site or to a specific person, or find matches that are related to two different people, plus much more. Some people think that law enforcement gets access to your raw DNA when you upload your profile. This is not true. Law enforcement does not get to see your raw DNA data when you consent to allow your data to be included in those types of searches. They have the same access as any other civilian user of GEDmatch. They can only see your name or GEDmatch alias if you've entered one, email address, and how much shared DNA there is between you and the unknown profile uploaded. GEDmatch is a highly secure site built with consumer security in mind, where users are in control of information they upload and can delete their data whenever they want. By joining the GEDmatch community, you can help see violent criminals brought to justice, missing people located, and unidentified bodies given a name. Join JedMatch today. Make sure you use JedMatch.com/DNAID. That's JedMatch.com/DNAID. One more attempt was made at a facial reconstruction in 2020. The New Hampshire cold case unit consulted with forensic anthropologists and experts in the field of digital facial reconstruction to create an updated image of Bedford Jane Doe's features. Finally, in February of 2020, the New Hampshire State Police partnered with the DNA Doe Project to identify Bedford Jane Doe. The DNA Doe Project was founded by doctors Margaret Press and Colleen Fitzpatrick specifically for the purpose of using forensic genealogy to identify Doe's. Dr. Fitzpatrick, widely considered the creator of modern forensic genealogy, is no longer associated with the DNA Doe Project. According to the DNA Doe Project's website, the lab work to develop a SNP profile from Jane Doe's remains was complex, and a second bone sample was required to produce a satisfactory sample. Once they finally had the requisite SNP profile, the DNA Doe Project also ran into complications with the forensic genealogy. There was a crucial match in GEDmatch that initially the genealogist had no access to. This from the DNA Doe Project press release, quote, Jedmatch changed the setting on that kit in May 2019 as part of their new policy regarding law enforcement access to matches. Because the kit remained opted out, when Jane Doe's profile was uploaded in 2020, that crucial connecting match, which would have solved the case immediately, was not available to the team. Jedmatch changed this policy in January of 2021 and since then, the entire database has been available for investigative genetic genealogy matching to John and Jane Doe's, end quote. Just to clarify, law enforcement searching GEDmatch for kinship relations of unidentified violent criminals use a specific portal of GEDmatch called GEDmatch Pro. They are able to receive matches only from those GEDmatch users who have opted into law enforcement searching. Because the new 2019 policy took place retroactively, users had to go back in and actively opt in, something many users did not do. As I've discussed on DNA ID, this change drastically reduced the number of DNA profiles in the database available to forensic genealogists researching criminal cases. But then, in 2021, GEDmatch changed their policy to notify all users that their profiles could now be used for Doe identifications. At this time, opting in is required only with regard to law enforcement searches relating to unsolved crimes. Make sure you opt in. The change by GEDmatch making all profiles available for Doe researchers revealed a profile that the genealogist hadn't been able to see before, a profile of a full biological sibling of Bedford Jane Doe. The sibling, a sister located in Texas, had taken a direct-to-consumer DNA test and uploaded her DNA file to GEDmatch. It allowed the DNA Doe project to solve the mystery of who Bedford Jane Doe was. Once the profile of a full sibling emerged with a very high number of centimorgans in common with Bedford Jane Doe, it would have been as easy as contacting the sibling and saying, Do you have a sister who disappeared circa 1971? With information and DNA from the family, DNA Doe Project identified Bedford Jane Doe as Catherine Ann Kathy Alston, who was 26 years old at the time of her death. Kathy was born on December 26, 1945, in Chelsea, Massachusetts, to Eugene and Mary Alston. She was the oldest of the three Alston siblings. Kathy grew up in the Boston area. She graduated from Dorchester High School in 1963. After graduation, she enrolled at BU, although it's unclear whether she graduated. It appears that she met her husband, fellow student Ralph Lawson Garrett Jr. at the school. Kathy and Ralph married at the second church in Newton, Mass. on November 1967. Kathy was 22. They honeymooned in Jamaica and settled in Cambridge and then Somerville. Kathy and Ralph's marriage disintegrated before too long and they divorced. In 1971, Kathy's family, which had remained local for the duration of her life, relocated to Texas. Her father, Eugene, had roots there. According to news releases about Kathy's identification, quote, Kathy was supposed to meet the family at Logan Airport in Boston in mid to late summer 1971 before their flight, but never showed up. End quote. Family members did not recall the date on which they left Boston. It's unclear whether Kathy was moving to Texas with her family or she was just planning on accompanying them to the Lone Star State on a temporary basis. But as you heard, Kathy did not make the flight. According to Kathy's family, who assisted in identifying her by giving DNA samples for comparison to the DNA of Bedford Jane Doe, they never saw or heard from Kathy again. It's not known why Kathy did not show up at the airport or communicate with her family. It seems likely that she was already deceased. What we do know is that at the time, late summer of 1971, Kathy was 26 years old and living on Beacon Street in Boston. She had a roommate whose name, records show, was David Cormier. Investigators do not know what their relationship was or anything about Cormier. They can't find him. Kathy's ex-husband, Ralph Garrett, is deceased, but there are no reports that their separation and divorce were acrimonious or that their relationship was volatile. Investigators were not able to find any missing persons reports relating to Kathy. It seems likely that her family called her apartment repeatedly and just never got an answer. If they called police, the chances are high that in the 70s, all they would have heard from law enforcement is, Kathy is a 26-year-old adult. It's her prerogative to be out of touch with her family. At best, police might have conducted a wellness check, but if they found no one home at Kathy's apartment, they likely just moved on. It seems probable to me that Kathy's sister made the decision to do a personal DNA test and enter her results into GEDmatch because she was hoping to locate her long-lost sister, Kathy Alston. And she did, although no doubt she did not receive the outcome she was hoping for. The identification of Bedford Jane Doe, one of New Hampshire's oldest cold cases, as Kathy Alston, was announced on January ninth, 2023 by New Hampshire Attorney General John Formella, Colonel Nathan Noyes of the New Hampshire State Police, and Chief John Bryfonski of the Bedford Police Department. Those authorities credited the forensic testing and assistance from the DNA Doe Project for the identification. To illustrate the complexity of this identification, I'm reading from the DNA Doe Project's statement recognizing all those who assisted with their efforts. The DNA Doe Project wishes to acknowledge the contributions of the groups and individuals who helped solve this case. The New Hampshire State Police, Dr. Amy Michael, University of New Hampshire, University of North Texas Health Science Center for Providing DNA Extract, Astraea Forensics for DNA Extraction, Hudson Alpha Discovery for Whole Genome Sequencing, Kevin Lord of Sabre Investigations for Bioinformatics, the Austin Police Homicide Cold Case Missing Persons Unit, GEDmatch and Family Tree DNA for providing their databases, our generous donors who contributed to this case, and the DNA Doe Project's dedicated teams of volunteer investigative genetic genealogists who work tirelessly to bring victims home, end quote. As you can imagine, all of this testing is very expensive. The DNA Doe Project is an all-volunteer 501c3 nonprofit organization which relies on donations to fund lab costs associated with obtaining DNA profiles in their cases. You can donate at DNADoproject.org. Meanwhile, now that we know who Kathy Alston is, investigators are hoping to solve her murder. They're seeking information from anyone who knew Kathy, including her former roommate David Cormier. Police believe that people most likely to have known either Kathy or David Cormier were residents of Boston, Dorchester, and Somerville, Massachusetts between 1963 and the fall of 1971. Students at Boston University between 1963 and 1967 may also remember Kathy from their time on campus. Anyone with this information, or any other information on her murder, is requested to contact investigators at the New Hampshire Cold Case Unit by phone at 603-271-2663. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. If you'd like to listen to the show ad-free and help support the show in the process, please head over to patreon.com slash DNA And if you're interested in some fun DNA ID merch, visit the store at customizedgirl.com slash s slash DNA ID podcast. To contact the show, please email us at DNAIDPodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at dnaidpodcast on Instagram, at dnaidpodcast on Twitter, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Podcast. Finally, if you want to visit our website, go to dnaidpodcast.com. You'll be able to get all the episodes of the show, leave comments on episodes that I can respond to, and you can even leave voicemails. You'll get all the latest news about the show and important updates. Find links to our social media, merch, and a lot more. It's really your one-stop shop for
1: everything DNA ID.